Okay, I encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we began looking at this passage some weeks back. First of all, we looked at the dangers of spiritual pride. And last week, we began to address the whole subject of humility, which is really the main point of Peter's uh, this portion of Peter's first epistle. So then, 1 Peter chapter 5, please follow as I read verses 5 and 6. Peter writes and says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, that is, the presbyters. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God abides forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O oh, holy fathers, we bow in your presence tonight. We come once again to your word. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would come upon people and preacher alike. Enable us, Father, to follow this passage, to understand what you have to say to us in it. And, Father, may our lives be clothed with humility and all of the great graces which accompany it. Father, I pray that your word this evening would run and have free course in all of our hearts, give bread to the sower, uh, to the eater, and, and seed to the sower, to the end that you may be exalted and, that glo and glorified above all. We plead through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now you remember that when I began to look at this passage uh, some weeks back, I said that we're going to look at three questions. First of all, what are the identifying marks, the telltale signs of spiritual pride? And then we're going to look at two questions that remain. And the first question that remains is, what are the essential or the necessary qualities essential to true humility? And we looked at the A part of that answer uh, last time, we saw that the distinct advantages that belong to humility are these. First of all, that humility is what we might describe as a magnet grace. It brings or it draws into its orbit other and greater blessings of God, the chief of which is God's own special presence. And then we saw last week, secondly, <clears throat> that the advantage of humility is that it results in exalted usefulness. Humility results in exalted usefulness. And we saw that's the kind of exaltation that is connected with this particular grace. And then we saw, in addition to that, that the third distinct advantage of humility is that it, as well as the fruits which accompany it, make the best possible presentation of Christ to men. And then, last of all, as we looked at this particular uh, 
part of the question, what are the essential characteristics of true humility, we saw that the fourth advantage is this. Humility provides the greatest freedom from stress to the soul. The greatest freedom from stress to the soul. It makes for inward calm when we confront the storms of outward opposition as well as difficulties in life. But now I want to come this evening to speak in a much more cursory way about what true humility is. What is humility? Humility is not easy to define, is it? Humility consists in at least four of the following spiritual characteristics and dispositions. And I'm going to simply present these and leave a great deal of the work to you to search through the scriptures and check me out to see if I'm speaking the truth of God's word. First of all, I would suggest to you, humility is embarrassment. Humility is embarrassment. It is embarrassment, sadness, and shame that God has created us so high and that we've fallen so low. We alone are the image bearers of God. In that sense, God has created us so high and we have fallen so low. That God has created us so good and that we have become so bad. And so much of that badness yet clings to us, notwithstanding all of the grace that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so humility is embarrassment that we never get over in this world. Embarrassment over what we are, but particularly embarrassment in renouncing the actual concrete expressions of our badness that keep leaping out of our lives or coming to the surface in our lives. Our continued love for sin and the world at times. Our evil thoughts, our lustful thoughts, our harsh and our harmful words to others, our lawless conduct. Humility is a persistent embarrassment before God over what we are and over what we do. But then secondly, humility is dependency. Humility is dependency. Humility is the quitting, the laying aside of all hope in ourselves. Casting as far from us as possible all creature confidence. And a complete reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is absolute trust in Christ. Absolute trust that Christ will be the only grounds of our acceptance before God. That he will be our propitiation. In short, absolute trust. Now, by that, I do not mean perfect faith. I'm not convinced that any of us possesses a perfect faith. But rather trust that has no other object but Christ. Christ is the only object of true trust, of true faith. Humility is whole soul resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for our justification before God, but for everything. 
the grace to be uh, a pastor, the grace to be a godly husband or a godly wife, the grace to be a godly father or a godly mother, to be a godly church member. We look, we depend entirely upon Christ for all of this. Then thirdly, humility is thankfulness. It is profound thankfulness, deep gratitude, amazement, if you please, at all that God has given us, at all that God has promised to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, free and abundant promises. Every good thing is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to make this point. Humility is not uh, being gloomy or depressed or melancholy. Humility uh, is not any sense of hopelessness or despair. But much to the contrary, humility brings rich and appropriate expectations on our part. God has made rich and abundant promises to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to the humble in particular. And there is humility. There is in humility this tremendous level of expectation of of, uh, happiness, of blessedness, even though there's also this pervasive sense of other unworthiness before God. Then fourthly, and I think this is very important in humility, and this really comes to the place where you find whether or not it, it becomes obvious with this point whether one really has humility, because humility is submission. Humility is submission, because God has done so much and promised so much And because God is so good and God's relationship given by Christ to us is the secret of all of our happiness and of all of our joy. And there's this robust determination that whatever he says he will do, God helping us. And it is the opposite. It is the antithesis of Humility to look at some part of God's revealed will and say, no, I don't think so. That's the opposite of humility. Or to have God say, I want you to go there. And for us to respond, no, I don't think I want to go there, Lord. That's beneath me. That's too frightening. Humility is the opposite of that. It is submission. To the Lord's will. And then finally, humility is contentedness. Humility is contentedness. Not contentedness, mind you, with our progress in our sanctification, but humility is contentedness in whatever assignment, whatever condition of life God determines for us is best for us. Perhaps it takes a while for us to figure out where that place is. But once God places us there, and that is the place, it's where God places us. Once he's placed you there, that's his will for you. We say, Lord, thank you. Why? Because any place, 
and your kingdom is far more than what I deserve. Any place in your kingdom. I'm happy just to be there. Help me, O oh God, to be faithful in that place where you set me. So humility is not a simple state, but it is a beautiful state. And uh, I want you to think about these sobering words from Jonathan Edwards. These are words taken from his work, Charity and Its Fruits. Listen to what he says. I think it's significant. He wrote, It is not every show and appearance of humility that will stand the test of the gospel. There are various imitations of it that fall short of the reality. Some put on an affected humility. Others have a natural low-spiritedness and are wanting in manliness or character. Others are melancholy or despondent. Others are under convictions of conscience for which For the time they are depressed, seem broken. Others seem greatly abased while in adversity and affliction. Or have a natural melting of the heart under the common illuminations of truth. To others, there is a counterfeit kind of humility wrought by the delusions of Satan. And all of these, Edward says, may be mistaken For true humility. Examine yourself, he writes, then and see what is the nature of your humility, whether it be of these superficial kinds or whether it be indeed wrought by the Holy Spirit in your hearts. And do not rest satisfied. This is key. Do not rest satisfied. Till you find that the spirit and behavior of those whom the gospel accounts as humble are yours. Now finally, what is the best means for cultivating humility? For you see, if we answer this question, we're also answering the question, what are the best means for defeating pride in our lives? And the answer to the one is the answer to the other. And so I'm going to limit myself to four means for the development of true humility. And so number one, we must labor, you and I, we must labor for a deep, persistent persuasion, a deep, persistent persuasion of our personal neediness with respect to humility and to pride. That we don't have enough humility and that we have too much pride in our lives. And that must be the consistent conviction that we carry with us all the time. The Apostle Paul commands us in Colossians 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Dear people, we should see pride as the spiritual terrorist of the soul. That's how we need to view pride. And we need to come to see it in that light. It is incredibly devious and self-deceiving. 
It really is. That we, that we need to see that pride works sometimes to make us bad, to make us selfish, to make us irritable, to make us make excuses for our irritableness, for our cross words, for example, to our wives as husbands. Oh, I, I, I was just having a bad... That's no excuse. No excuse. But then almost in a heartbeat, pride can change colors. And pride works to make us good men, or at least to appear to be good men. And pride will help us defeat our sins in order to strengthen its own position in our souls. That's how devious pride is. Pride would help us in holy duties, once again, to exaggerate itself in our thoughts. See how strong you are. See how meticulous and how careful you walk as a Christian. See how holy you are. Well, it's the same enemy that says you have a right to be angry over that. You have a right to be disgusted. You have a right to be covetous. You have a right uh, to more of this world than you actually have. It's the same enemy that comes alongside of us and says, See how able you are to conquer your sin? You're a strong man, aren't you? You're a strong woman, aren't you? It's the same enemy that whispers that to our souls. I wish I could say that there's some prospect that we'll get the best of that, of that enemy in this world. But dear people, we fight it all our life long. All our life long. We will never see a complete triumph of humility and a complete defeat of spiritual pride in this world. Henry Martin said something that I think that we all recognize to be painfully true. He said, Men frequently admire me, and I am pleased, and I abhor the pleasure that I feel. I think that's true for all of us. I am pleased when men admire me, but I abhor the pleasure that I feel. Another unnamed minister said, I have to observe in my mind a sinful, he called it a sinful anxiety to preach well rather than to preach usefully. That's something that we ministers have to guard against. Complete victory is impossible in this world, but momentary victories are possible, dear people, and we're to pursue them case by case, day by day. Triumphs over pride are possible, but if we're to know even momentary success, we have to be convinced that pride is a serious problem, not to that person's soul, but to my soul. To my soul. Secondly, in response to our deep conviction of our personal problem with pride and our need for humility, dear people, we must pray. We must cry out to God and ask Him to help us with this problem. 
We must pray about these matters. We must pray a great deal for humility, asking God to grant it to us. And we must pray a great deal against pride of the soul. This must be one of the highest items on our prayer sheet. We must pray that God would forgive us, that God would forgive us that every occurrence of outward pride that comes to expression, whether it be inward or whether it be outward, every inordinate thought of self-congratulation for a clever insight or for a clever turn of words or a clever play on words that other people remember and even quote us. We must ask God to forgive us for every inordinate self-congratulation Because, for example, from a minister that we've preached a sermon that is useful. Or we had a counseling session with someone who said, Well, Pastor, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. I can't tell you how much that helped me. What are we to do with that? Well, of course, we're to thank God. We're to thank God that we were able to do some good. In any situation, but then immediately that thought and that sense of rejoicing must be directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us the mind. He gave us the thoughts. He gave us his word. He gave us the insight. Oh, Lord Jesus, I think I can't believe that you did something amazing through me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God is doing things through us. It is amazing grace, but it's all of God's grace. Never forget that. And dear people, we ought to be amazed at that grace. We don't have that hymn for nothing, amazing grace. It is amazing. We ought to be amazed at a Christ who has that kind of patience with us and that kind of power to work through us when we're the worst of people. We need to pray for the forgiveness of our pride. But then we need to pray that God would love us enough to prevent pride from happening. Pray to God to prevent pride from happening. That he would prevent pride from happening without taking away our opportunities for greater influence. We ought to pray that God would use us more, but in using us more, that he would give us wider opportunities to influence men and women, cultures for Christ, that he would do whatever is necessary to hold us back from pride. Paul testified in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God anticipated his own pride in response to certain spiritual privileges which were granted to him, certain revelations that were given to him that had not been given to anyone else, in which Paul was granted the privilege of seeing things no one else had seen and lived to tell about it in this world, hearing things that he could not lawfully speak according to. Heavy privileges given to him by God. But God anticipated that Paul's response would be a tendency to pride. But God loved Paul enough to undertake measures to prevent Paul's pride before it happened. How did he do it? 
Listen to how Paul describes it. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Now think about that for just a moment. Would you concur, would you agree that Paul was a better man, a better Christian than any of us sitting here in this place tonight? Would you agree with that? It was not enough for that good man to have God say, Paul, you'll tend to be proud about this, so don't do it. No, it required something even more radical than that for the Apostle Paul. A stake had to be driven, as it were, into his flesh to keep him from being proud. And Paul didn't like that stake. He didn't like that thorn. And so he pleaded with God to take it away. And in essence, Christ said, No, Paul, I'm not going to take it away. You need this. You need this thorn because I intend to use you and I intend to use you in great ways you're going to tend to be proud so I'm going to leave that stake that thorn right there in your flesh so that you'll never feel sufficient in yourself again so that you will tremble before every opportunity Because in that trembling and in that sense of painful lowliness, my strength, Paul, will be perfected in you. And Paul came to the place where he could say, give me another stake. If that's what I need, give me another thorn. If that's what it takes, if that's what it requires to keep me humble and to make me more useful then bring it on. I'm not sure I've attained that that state of spirituality. We need to pray that God will love us like that nonetheless, that God will enlarge our opportunities, that God will enlarge our usefulness, that God will anticipate that and to keep us from becoming proud. And he'll do it. He'll make us humble. Samuel Rutherford expressed it like this. He said, humility is a strange flower. It grows best in winter weather and under storms of affliction. That's true. And the Apostle Paul testifies that it's true. Moreover, God could humble us by taking away all of our opportunities of service. That Now that would humble us, would it not? He could shut me up and put me in a closet so that nobody would ever listen to me preach. He could do that. He could humbly say to me, David, I'm done with you. But we ought to pray that God would simply enable us To be used in a wise way. God is great enough to do that. But we must pray for clear views of Christ. 
clear views of his meekness and mildness and his love for us. I think the third means for cultivating humility and defeating pride is that we ought to thank you and I periodically, very seriously, about just how good our good really is. Just how good our good really is. We tend to pat ourselves on the back because we've been able to stay the course and maybe to keep our schedule for a time and we really feel good about that. And there is an appropriate sense of accomplishment in it. And our consciences say, well, you know, you, you've done that very well. People are very pleased with you. But pride, dear people, is there prowling around in the shadows. Make no mistake to deform and twist and warp that sense of well-being. We engage ourselves in much study and we've learned a lot. But how much do we really know? How much do we really know? We ought to stop long enough to ask ourselves with the same honesty that we'll be forced to face in the last day how good our good really is. We need to think about our graces. How consuming is our love for God? How consuming is our love for Him? How unwavering is our faith? When, for example, we faced and heard a piece of earth-shattering news, how steadfast was our faith, our faith in the face of that particular news? How strong was our trust and our confidence in God? How many of us could could honestly take the posture of Job and stand in his sandals and confess the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We need to ask ourselves those questions And we need to ask those questions about the performances of our duties before God. How steadfast and believing and spirit anointed have been our prayers to God. How well have we loved the brethren. It's a difficult thing to love some folk. It really is. And God says, you think you're a Christian? I'm going to place... This fellow right in the pew next to you, that is a very difficult person for you to like. And I'm going to place him in the pew next to you, and I'm going to say, you say you're a Christian, you love him. You love him. That's a difficult thing to do, dear people. It's a difficult thing to To be loving to someone who is standing there and dressing you down in the presence of everyone else. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) How effective have we been in the Sunday school class or in the pulpit or at work? And when we ponder our good, honestly, we'll be amazed ourselves that There could ever be so much pride coming out of so much that is defective. Because our good is not really 
that good. The fourth and the final means, and I'll make this point and I'll close and I'll be done for this evening and you'll be thankful. <laughs> the name for cultivating humility is this. My dear people, and I rather think that this is all that we need if we do it honestly. We need to meditate often upon that great leveling moment that is near at hand. That great leveling moment that is near at hand. There is a day of great leveling that is about to come. It's the day of death and it's the day of judgment. And I'm quite sure that I do not have an adequate mental image of what that day will be like. Indeed, I'm fairly certain that in that great and last day, Christian ministers, missionaries, Sunday school teachers, church officers are not, are not going to be segregated from the rank and file of God's people. We're going to be standing there with them. And in that great last and terrible day, we'll be standing side to side with all of the saints and all of the redeemed of all of the ages. And the only thing, the only thing that will mark, the only thing that will distinguish us is the vast amount of privilege and the vast amount of light that we've been given that others were not given. We will not be judged according to our titles, our accomplishments, or by our years of service to Christ. We will be judged by the reality that to whom much is given, given much will be required in return. That's how we're going to be judged in the last day. Now, how are we going to stand up in that day? Are we going to stand alongside them with other Christians of our own generation that have had much less work that we've had? They've done a lot less. Nobody ever told them about the Puritan John Owen. No one ever told them about Jonathan Edwards. Others that have not had the godly models that we have had. Others that never uh, attended the church where biblical principles were actually fleshed out in the lives of people as they are here. And even with our own warts and flaws, we've seen these things in this church. How are we going to stand alongside of them in that day? How will we measure up in that day? How we deal with our pride. How we deal with it. I tell you how. Think about the day of judgment. That'll help you deal with your pride. Think about that great leveling day before God. And if we think honestly, I think our, our response will no longer be how great I am. But rather, oh God, have mercy on me. May God be pleased to strip us bare of all creature confidence and of every thought that exalts itself against the reality of the fact that no flesh, again, not even humble flesh, no flesh 
should glory in his presence. And may we from the heart join the course of the psalmist. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Let us pray.